Hey folks, welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I am your co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist, and I am joined by the lovely Rob Hadley, your other co-host, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. Rob, how are you this week? I am lovely. Thanks, Nadia. Yeah. Great to be here. How are you doing? Yeah. You know, I'm April showers, bring May flowers, right? I've never heard that. What uh, that, is that something you just made up off the top of your head? What is that new? Well, guess what, Rob? Do you know what else yes. May brings? What? AAPI Heritage Month. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. I actually wanted to do a little bit about that. Can I? Do you mind if I just uh, share some things? I will cede the floor. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so, um, Asian American Pacific Islanders Heritage Month consists of um, 30 plus countries um, and, of course, different ethnic groups who speak hundreds of different languages. Um, this month first became a yearly observance after legislation was introduced in 1992, and it was designed to commemorate the arrival of the first known Japanese immigrant to the U.S. Um, in 1843. Um, and Rob, you know, just, of course, you know this, I just want to share with our listeners that this community, it's so large, right? Like, especially in the U.S. when we think of right. Asian Americans, there's, of course, like East Asian, South Asian, Southeast Asian, right? Like, they're, it's so broad. Asia is a huge continent. Um, and, of course, this group of people have experienced uh, racial stereotypes, prejudice, and, of course, more recently was, you know, this community was the target on anti-Asian hatred and crime during the pandemic. Um, so I have just noticed and observed, uh, it's been really wonderful to see the support and solidarity um, with the Asian community, not just like in this month, but also throughout the year. So um, I just wanted to share that with our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So it's so it's not just Asians. Is that is that what you're saying? It's, yeah, it's, well, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> no, in terms of, it oftentimes, in, with regard to DEI initiatives or any kind of demographic data, all Asians are grouped together, and so yes. the, the there's just they each group or subset or of people of Asian descent. You can if you if you dig into the issues that they face in terms of either discrimination or uh, how they're impacted by DEI in the workplace. It's it, it can be very different from group to group. So yeah, yeah. very glad you brought this up. And we'll come back to that over the course of our episodes within May. I think should touch on it a couple more times. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for letting me talk through that. Yeah. So let's talk about the details, or I'm sorry, we call it the deets, right? Is that what we do? Yeah, let's, let's get to the deets. So Nadia, all right. So our first story this week, former advisor to the president, Stephen Miller. And yes, the hair on the back of my neck did stand up as I said that. And then it vomited as I mentioned that name, apparently has this, this gentleman has a new nonprofit and mission. So Miller's America First Legal fought a lawsuit last week against Mars, again, candy company, not the planet, for allegedly engaging in discriminatory hiring and promotion practices. The organization okay. is using the fact that Mars has diversity goals and its commitment to DEI is an indication that it practices or has deeply unlawful and discriminatory practices um, and, uh, you know, that's their reasoning. The fact that they have DEI is, uh, is proof of that. So okay. first of all, you know, welcome back, Stephen Miller. We missed yeah. you. 
Uh, it's just such a nice, it's just such a nice reminder of how nice the last three years have been without yeah, some of these so folks quiet. running around. Yeah. Uh, so, any thoughts on this one before I, Wait, I have so a couple? Like, I mean, to just so that our audience understands, like they're claiming like reverse racism, reverse sexism. Is that does that sound um, yes accurate in some ways? Okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so to me. It sounds like Mars is engaging in efforts where like they provide opportunities and access to resources that help make historically marginalized people equal to more dominant groups. And I don't see anything wrong with that. So (laughs) no, no. So so it's ridiculous. Right. And I'm I'm guessing that Mars has very capable legal HR teams. They know what they're doing in terms of. diversity target setting, right? From that standpoint, I'm sure it's all very rock solid with the way that they do it. And I feel like this claim will be dismissed. You know, they're looking for a judge that will actually give this some merit. Um, But, you know, I did jot down like five best practices on setting DEI and specifically diverse representation targets. Do you want to hear them? I got five. Yeah, I want to hear them. Okay. All right. One, focus on process measures. So instead of representation goals, set goals to make sure that no one is either over or underrepresented in the hiring promotion in terms of retention in your company to use gender and race neutral language. So we want to create opportunities for everyone. We're looking for parity, uh, things of that nature. Three set goals around improvement. So we want to be more representative as opposed to we want to have exactly X percent of a certain race. I think that's what Mars actually did do in this case. Um, Four, when sharing your representation metrics for a people process, compare races to all other employees. So don't pit two races against each other in the way that they either set goals or report. So if it's black Americans versus all other, right, not Mm -hmm. black versus white, and then set goals that can be achieved over time. So over a long period of time. So no one can say uh, that, well, I felt pressure to meet a goal. So I made a decision based on race or gender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Remember, Nadia, our goal is to make our lawyers nervous, but not angry. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. Well, there's that. Anything else you want to add to that piece? No, what's next? What's next? What's next? So last week, I just flew this airline. So this is interesting. Alaska Airlines was forced to remove gendered uniforms due to a discrimination lawsuit filed by non-binary and gender fluid flight attendants. So um, Alaska Airlines scrapped traditional male and female uniform requirements as part of ongoing legal battle um, right. involving the state of Washington. So this was the state of Washington and the employee. Um, the Washington law permits all employees to dress and groom in a professional manner that is consistent with their gender identity and expression. So what happened was A consent decree was issued after an agreement between Alaska Airlines and the Washington State AG's office um, where Alaska Airlines has to pay the flight attendant $70,000 and the ACLU $40,000 for its legal fees. And then furthermore, Alaska will modify the uniform policy to remove the gendered restrictions and language on uniform pieces, facial, hair, jewelry, and makeup. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll pause there. What are your kind of uh, reactions to that? Well, we did something similar on this a few months ago, right? So Virgin Airlines, they basically say, here are a bunch of things to pick from. You do you, right? Right. And I think that's really the right approach. <clears throat> and excuse me, Nadia, I'm starting to get a little annoyed 
by these stories, right? Like, aren't we, aren't we about freedom here in the United States of America? Like if I want to wear a dress, aren't I entitled to wear a dress? Right? Like seriously, right? This is the land of the free only if I wear pants, if I'm a man, is that how, is that what we're talking about here? Right. And so, and I think that this goes to all issues of workplace dress. So the dress code should always be dress appropriately, appropriately for your role. And that should be it, right? That's pretty much it. So I am, uh, you know, very happy that our friend Justin, in this case, uh, uh, filed this lawsuit. And it seems like uh, with help from the ACLU, and it seems like uh, it's going to be impactful for a lot of people. Yeah. So it's funny when you started saying, like, I'm annoyed. I'm also annoyed with what you said, but I'm also more annoyed, like, there are legal implications and financial impacts that are very large for these organizations. Like, why are we not learning from prior past discrimination lawsuits? Like, it would be really wise if you're a business and an organization to follow suit to avoid other kind of legal disasters, right? Like, it's also just the right thing to do. <laughs> like, right. so for me, it's like, okay, Alaska Airlines, you've done this. So, like, the other American airlines that are out there, like follow suit, like do yeah. it now. <laughs> There's, yeah, I just don't understand why we take such a long time to like do the right thing. And we wait. Yeah, till, I'm like, looking at you, little... Delta, Delta right? Airlines yeah. calling you out. Let's Maybe. get a let's let's get a commitment from all the other airlines that this should be the policy. They should let's really should it. have just learned from what Virgin did yep. and just made that their policy and just moved on with life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And totally. save themselves a lot of money. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was more of a rant than it was a deep, but here we go. Um, so that is it for the It was deeps. a little ranty. Yeah. It was a little ranty, but you know what? The people are here for that. So um, <laughs> that is it for the deets. Uh, we will be right back with our guest, Alicia Thomas of Harvard Business School. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, folks. Welcome back. So this week on Inclusive Collective Podcast, we welcome Alicia Thomas, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, MBA and Doctoral Programs at Harvard Business School. Alicia has spent her entire career working in higher education and is passionate about supporting historically underserved communities in education. From academic advising to teaching, operations and budgets to admissions, orientation, programming, development, and student club management, Alicia has served in roles that all center around the student experience, which I appreciate because I'm a student. <laughs> in her current role, Alicia is able to use her experiences and training to support Harvard Business School students. She was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
and received her bachelor's in economics from the University of Maryland, College Park, and her MBA with a focus in nonprofit management from the Smith School of Business at University of Maryland. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you for joining us this week on Inclusive Collective Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Alicia, welcome. It's so great to meet you. Thanks again for being with us. Can we can we start with some context for our listeners? So what does representation in the MBA and doctoral programs look like there at Harvard? So where are you with regard to gender, race? Um, you know, MBA and PhD programs are very international. So how do you think about those students? Uh, do you look at subsurface characteristics like socioeconomic background? Set the table for what these student bodies look like in 2023. Yeah, absolutely. So for us, it's important to have the diversity of the nation kind of in our classes. Um, so we have, like you said, a really heavy international population. Um, we are at 38% international, um, which is, I think, about like average for most MBA programs kind of in our space. Um, we are at almost parity for men and women. So we're at about 46% women, which is amazing, um, especially considering the boys club that is business world. So hmm. I'm always... Yeah. Happy to hear about that 46% that continues to grow. Um, yeah. And then in terms of our other demographics, we do look at race and gender. We look at, um, so for example, our Black and um, Black American, African-American students are, are at around 15, 13%. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else? Let's see. Our Asian-American students are at about 28%. Um, white students, about 60%. Native, Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander, you're at, let's see, pretty low percentage on that one, about 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really do look at the full spectrum and we try to get a good idea of who the students are when they come to us. But um, to your point, Rob, about like socioeconomic status and things like that, we are very intentional in asking questions like, Help us understand your familial obligations. Help mm. us understand where your money is going, how much debt that you have right now. Um, help us understand everything that goes into your regular lifestyle so that we can kind of be better prepared to serve you and to help you right. thrive once right. you get here. Um, one thing that I love about our population is that we have a really strong um, partner population. So we are a residential campus. And we have folks on campus. And so we have the daycare and we have the family centers. And so you will see the kids like walking around campus mm-hmm. in their strollers and everything. Um, so it's important as the folks who really like come here, get the education they want, um, still feel supported, still make sure that their spouses feel seen and supported um, and that they can still get their education and thrive. That's great. I do love that there's a focus on the the various dimensions of diversity, um, you know, of course, taking into consideration like the race, the the gender, um, you said socioeconomic, of course, all, all the other factors and dimensions. I would imagine, though, there's probably still gaps. That's probably why you're on board and why there's still efforts. What what are the efforts um, that you folks are starting to take as it? relates to recruiting maybe historically uh, marginalized students? Yeah. So one of the reasons I even joined HBS in the Harvard community was this focus on um, the racial equity plan. So HBS has a racial equity plan that, similar to other programs, came out after George Floyd. 
Um, but what it did is it specifically focused on supporting Black communities. And for me, if Harvard Business School can recognize that Black communities are deeply impacted and say that this is what we're putting towards it, I'm on board, right? And so that on top of having our chief diversity officer, Terrell Drake, and he has a team. So there've been, um, there's been a ton of effort, money, and people put into the place to make sure that we can better support folks when they get to campus. And like, again, that was one of the main reasons I was like, okay, I feel more comfortable stepping into this role because it's not just me, which is what we see typically in this space. It's just one person with limited resources trying to like push the train to get it done. And at HBS, they were like, we have a team that's growing. We have a budget and we have people. So please come and help us. Um, So I would say one thing is the infrastructure. HBS has set up an infrastructure that can support us really getting some work done. Um, From the representation perspective, we have admission staff that are dedicated to um, diversity outreach. And one thing that some of us are working on, including me right now, are figuring out how do we stay more connected with HBCUs? How -hmm. do we make sure that we're bringing more people to campus so that they have exposure to HBS? Because in my opinion, you can't even like imagine yourself there until you are actually on the grounds with the rabbits and the like all the beautiful animals <laughs> the around. It's like it's like this yeah, totally. oasis. And it's it's amazing. But it's hard yeah. to stick even imagine yourself there, right? I couldn't imagine myself there until I actually went to visit. So one thing that's really important to me is bringing more people to campus to get exposure. Um, and so one thing I did is I brought a group of students from Georgetown McDonough School of Business. So I used mm-hmm. to work there. I had a connection there, of course. Um, but I was like, okay, how can we tap into these underserved populations? And so we were able to work with a group called Gamble at uh, Georgetown. And this is diverse students, Asian American, Black, Latino, um, Native American, Pacific Islander, all of the above, basically. Mm-hmm. They came for a day. They got to sit in a class with our students. So they got to see it in action. They got to see the faculty in action. And that to me is like a maybe the biggest way that we can make sure we're getting more representation in our numbers is making sure that we're exposing more and more people um, to, to HBS. Like it is not this little pocket that only certain people can get access to. I want to make sure that it is a pocket that everyone can get access to and feel like they can be there and thrive and, and mm-hmm. do great things. The, I, I loved about 10 different things you said there. Let's go through each, each one of them. No, I think, <laughs> but, um, you know, so the first thing was about the support that you have, right. And the fact that I well, think that only about 9% of DEI leaders have, staff and dedicated budget, right? So it's usually a one person band uh, trying to do these very complex uh, initiatives as well. And then you talked about all the different programs you have. I just wondered for all the different things that you're doing, all the activities, how much do you think about measuring the impact or the effectiveness and how, and just, you know, just in a very broad sense, what do you think about measurement and what are things that, some of the things that you're tuned into? Yeah. So from the measurement perspective, I would say we, I try to get a ton of feedback for me. It's checking in with everyone that has like crossed my path and literally mm-hmm. just asking the question of how it, how it went. Um, Cause I feel like we get so caught up in like sending these reviews later or the rubrics later and no one actually responds to them. So I'm like, how can I make sure that I'm getting it in like 
yeah. getting the, the good stuff before they leave. So I kind of make it a point to ask the questions, especially like after the DEI trainings that we put in place. I want to make sure that students are feeling like, okay, as soon as I leave the door of this DEI training, how am I feeling? What am I tapping into? What is going to be that next step for me? Um, mm -hmm. So data is incredibly important in this process. And so part of it for me is just having those one-on-one -on -one check-ins, um, yeah. taking notes of all of that, hosting focus groups just to make sure we're tapped into how students are actually feeling. I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing that because, um, you know, and how, and I how feel sad like I've been it makes a, me. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. I want numbers. No, no. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. Actually. Yeah. Go ahead. Now. Yeah. It is right. Like getting that because I. So I. You know, I'm a student as well as you as both of you know, and I. Mm -hmm. I. I yearned like community, and I when I was on campus specifically for the doctoral program that I was in, and. I, I was not alone, but it was also just a need that I that I needed. And I feel like if somebody had that really kind of cared, had asked what mm -hmm. I was yearning, there probably could have been solutions that were provided to me. And and um, anyways, that leads to my next question around like, you know, of course, you're talking to students. Um, you're I love that you're having interactions. It's not just like here, take this survey. Tell me through like a computer what what how you feel or you're actually speaking to them um, in person. Mm -hmm. What are you finding are kind of those now needs and accommodations of these students who I would imagine are all very different generations. And also now we're like in a world where it's, I don't want to say post pandemic cause we're not real. Well, I guess Biden said we're over it, but like <laughs> we, we have, yeah, we've, we've moved, you know, we did experience kind of, three years of, of changing the way that we, we interact and connect, um, in, in the classroom. So what has, what are some of those needs and accommodations of students that you're finding that you're um, now having to put in either newer programs, um, you know, from, from that DEI lens as yeah. it relates to students. So what's, what I think is interesting and like very different from, I think when we went to school is that students are asking a lot more of the institution than they have in the past. And I think like being at, at, when I was in school, I was just like, let me just get this done. I'm going to move forward. This isn't great, but no one's going to listen. And it's just going to take up time. Let me just move forward. Now yeah. students are like, this is an issue. And I really need someone to address this because if you're not addressing it for me, then someone else may be more deeply impacted. And part of me is like, okay, great. Our students are like thinking more broadly and they're thinking like, how can we make sure the world is better for the future? Um, but also there are things, I, I mean, like little things that students will ask for now where I'm like, I just need you to use Google. Like, I, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Google. Yeah. Right. So it's a balance. But I think right. that the biggest thing the students are looking for now is mental health support. That is a huge piece. And um, what is special about HBS is that we provide um, mental health support for our students that is housed in our offices and not in the larger H the larger Harvard community. So like the larger Harvard community has its own mental services, but we saw a need for our students to get this specialized support. Um, and so what, from a DEI perspective, our um, African-American student union, for example, is looking for black therapists to make sure that they're feeling supported. 
our Latin American Student Association are looking for Latin American student um, therapists to make sure that they're supported. So mental health, I think, is the biggest piece that our students are asking for. They're looking for that support because the, the transition to come into business school is so intense. And we really put, I mean, it is truly drinking from the fire hose in any and every possible way. And our students are like, great, we'll lean into this. But also, are you going to make sure that I don't have a breakdown while we're going through this process? And I'm like, spare. I don't want you to have a breakdown. Like, let's make sure that you feel more supported. So we've done more programming around wellness, journaling. Um, we're working on getting more therapists because in the world, it's just harder to find therapists of color, yeah. therapists in general. Um, so those are just like some things on the mental health side that that we're doing. Um, our clubs are so imperative to the HBS process that they provide support through tutoring. So we have tutoring and you can see the person who is the tutor. So if you feel more comfortable getting a tutor that is someone that looks like you, you can tap into that. It's great. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. Uh, it is such a pressure cooker of an environment, mm -hmm. right? When you, when you first step onto mm -hmm. the, the campus there and into any kind of, uh, MBA program. So, um, I was thinking about how you create the, I was, I was thinking broadly about the environment. You said there were, there are still, there, there's, you know, 60% white students. I'm sure there's a few white male students still, still hanging around at, uh, at Harvard Business School. Um, I was thinking about how you create the right environment for DEI. Um, you know, what are the character, inclusive characteristics you look for from the white cis male students as you're either bringing them in or how do you, uh, what's the kind of programming for them? So that because, and I also think about Harvard as the outsized impact it has on creating leaders that will be uh, at the top of organizational charts someday. And 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 you want them yeah. to ha be inclusive leaders. So talk a little about what how you think about those things. Sure. I mean, that is our goal is to train future leaders of the world. Um, and from my perspective, just like you, Rob, it's like these leaders have to be more aware, more cognizant of others and of difference and how that deeply impacts how they show up in this world and in this space. Um, so there's a couple things. At HBS, we have a course that's called Inclusion. And so that is a required course for all of our students. And it is one of the first classes that they take. It really helps them think about how do you bring somebody in from a different perspective? How do you understand where they're coming from? And then how do you move forward and make sure that you're pushing forward and supporting them um, in the business world? So we have that structure set into our curriculum, which is amazing. The other thing that we started is um, DEI trainings for all of our club leaders. Mm. So we're like slowly ingraining like more DEI support into the like different levels that our students interact. And so if we can get our student leaders to have the training, understand what it means to be an ally, understand the different isms that happen in the world and understand how they are likely very much connected um, understanding intersectionality and how they show up. Um, those are the pieces where we're like, okay, let's tap into our leaders. Let's tap into our student government and have them start getting the training. And then we'll slowly start making sure that more and more of our students are able to get it. So we started DEI training um, when I got here in, let's say, we just did the DEI training last month. So oh, really nice. excited to have that. We also did, and I led like trainings on facilitating tough conversations, because I think that's mm. a, a huge part of this too, is how do we even engage when we don't agree in the classroom? Sure. And folks get really stuck in that. And there is this idea of cancel culture. 
And I'm just like, wait, this that this can't exist in this space if we're trying to like help each other grow. So we really right. focus on, okay, how do we make sure we understand how to talk to each other and how to bring each other in and tell each other, I don't agree. Help me understand more from your perspective. Right. So those are the like trainings and programs that we've we put in place. Um, again, I've I haven't even been there for a year. So I'm excited to see what we can continue to offer and continue to like grow out this piece so that our, you know, students from the GOP club still feel supported and seen and still feel like they they still have a place here. Sure. You've spent time at different institutions. Um I'm curious, like, are there similarities? I'm, I'm, I'm sure students are similar from one yeah. institution to the, the next. But what are you finding in your short time at Harvard, maybe versus where you previously worked or even attended yeah. um, or just heard? Uh, I'm just curious because we look at HBS as this really, um, you know, remarkable institution. I'm based in Boston, so it's, yeah. you know it's a, it's an institution where people really kind of admire and look up to. And so I'm just curious, like, have you seen some of the differences, um, just all around? Yeah. So let me say this. HBS was never on my radar, like in, in life, it was never like, oh yes, I will take, I will have a step on HBS's campus. Never crossed my mind. Um, in my MBA program, we also did like every other business school, we used their cases in class. So that's how I was aware of HBS. And you know, like this Harvard, the great Harvard, right? Um, and I would say, so I worked at Georgetown McDonough School of Business before this. And that was like the best preparation for me to step into Harvard. Um, before Georgetown, I was at University of Maryland. So that is a state school where like resources are low. We can give pizza parties. And that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's as far right. as you know, right and so then i got sure. to georgetown and i was like okay now we're at a private school we got a little bit more money that we can work with a little bit more resources um but we're also dealing with a very different population of students who is typically privileged typically has more access typically um more connected um and have very different living lived experiences than some of our state school students um because georgetown prepared me so well for the Harvard Business School because it was the, still the type A, really strong personalities, real, a lot of privilege coming to the table, um, but also high expectations of the institution. So then when I got to Harvard, I, well, first I had to come to terms with I'm at Harvard, which is like a whole other, right, a whole other thing. Um, and once I got to the point where it's like, okay, these are all normal people who are just trying to make the world a better place like I am. Awesome. You look at our students and our students are also typically privileged, typically have access, but we all, we do have this really great pool of um, students who are just maybe didn't have access, maybe didn't come from, you know, the, the best part of Massachusetts or the best part of the world. And they're still able to thrive here. So we have a really strong first gen low income club. And that really like encompasses a lot of our students who just come from these different backgrounds. And that's like how we make sure that we're supporting them as they're in this bucket. Um, so I think access to resources was the biggest, like amazing moment for me. I was like, oh my gosh, one y'all are giving me a budget 
Right. That's amazing. Two, I can use it as I see fit. And three, there are additional resources. And then there's alumni that I can tap into. So it's like the access. Right. Once you get to HBS, it's like it's the same thing that the students come for is this access and network. That's the same thing I'm getting. And so it's been great because I've had alum check in with me and they're like, let's make let's make this program happen. So I'm like, great, let's figure out how to make it happen. And these are, you know, folks who are really successful and doing amazing things in the world. So they, we can make it happen. They think like, that is the thing for me. Like we can actually make this stuff happen and set the tone and set the stage for the rest of the institutions in this nation. Yeah. You, you almost have the opportunity to create that standard, right? Yeah. It's it's all there. And then it, HBS and Harvard are intentional. If not anything else, they are intentional with mm-hmm. everything that they do. So they set up the stage for our, the DEI folks to be able to make an impact. And you don't see that everywhere. Yeah, I love that. And it's it's almost like resources are unlimited, right? Like it's, it's you, you can do pretty much everything you want. And it also puts some pressure on the institution and then you as the leader of what? DEI there. To really set the, you know, to set the uh, pace for the rest of the programs in the country, right? So, um, yeah, and and I do have a, one of my best friends did go to that Smith School of Business as well there in Maryland. So I'll have to ask him about the pizza parties there as well. So, uh, but that's one hell of a business school too, by the way. Um, It is. Great program. uh, Yeah. So, um, Alicia Thomas, again, thanks so much for being with us. As we just wrap up here, just wanted to see. Can you give our listeners, you know, one resource that you recommend, something that you're into right now related to DEI that you think would be helpful? Sure. So this is going to maybe sound a little cheesy, but I'm going to throw out Harvard Business Review as a resource. So if you go to our... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we love it. (laughs) We love it. We love it. I mean, I read one at least once a day. (laughs) So, yeah. So I, you know, I can go, literally, you can go in and type in diversity into the Harvard Business Review and see a ton of articles and research being done by folks, not just on this campus, but outside of campus. And so for me, that's like a great place where you can see what business leaders are suggesting is a good practice in the DEI space. Now, is it all encompassing? No. Is it like probably as deep of knowledge? Maybe not. But I think the business application is what's super helpful because that's what makes it tangible and like seem realistic and um, you can make this happen. And that's what I appreciate the most. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Rob is walking out like, no. I know, Rob's like, I'm out. I'm a a subscriber. He's a subscriber. Look at him. He's showing. I have a print subscription. I'm reluctant to acknowledge. But yes, no, that's it's all very curated too. So it's like it is the best of the best in thinking around okay. DEI a, lo- a lot of times. So I, I fully support that recommendation. Yeah, yeah me that, too. That's where, okay. that's where I lean towards because even when our staff are looking for support, I'm like, let's just start here where we know it applies to business and we know that it can likely be applicable to the issue at hand. And then we can like continue to take steps back to say, okay, is there a deeper issue that we need to talk about? Like, okay, do we need to bring in a facilitator to engage with us. Like we just keep kind of taking those stuff back, but it's a great place to start. For sure. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Alicia Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective, especially because there's graduation coming up and commencement. And I know you're super busy. 
Um, but we appreciate you coming and joining us and sharing such great insight of the good work that's happening at Harvard Business School. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with our uh, Calm Reflections and Raves and Rants. Welcome back, folks. We just finished chatting with Alicia Thomas, Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion of the MBA and Doctoral Program at Harvard Business School. Rob, I mean, I, I'm going to share my thoughts really briefly, and then I want to just ask you for sure, yours. Sure. But I really appreciated the student focus, the student experience, right? Like, of course, I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. Uh, lifelong student, I feel like at this point. And I just appreciate the efforts that Alicia and her team are focused on um, in bringing a more inclusive and equitable campus, especially because Harvard Business School is this institution we all like know about. Mm -hmm. We all, um, I don't, I don't want to generalize and say everybody admires, but we absolutely all know about. And it is almost like the epitome of where people think I don't know. It's an institution that people look at. And so um, and I also really appreciate her talking about mental health um, awareness and support that's needed for the students because it is Mental Health Awareness Month mm. as well. And so I appreciate her bringing that to attention for students because studying and learning is tough right now yeah. on college campuses. Yeah. I mean, look, it's the second best business school in the world. Right. Uh, next to Warden. Right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, I got that yeah, one. Yeah, you got that one? No, I think so, you yeah. know, from a very personal perspective, right? I thought about mental health too. Um, you know, so, I, so it made me think with all the resources they have, I wish I could, could go to business school now. That wouldn't make much sense because I'm 47 years old now. But it, I was just really excited about that aspect. I was in that pressure cooker, right? And the, the amount of anxiety for people, you know, from different backgrounds that go into that group and where it's like, it's the elite of the elite. Everyone's, you know, a thousand times smarter than you and everyone's, you know, really type A and all trying to yeah. change the world. And it's like, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to take on. Right. And so those were not resources that I had access to when, you know, when I was a student, uh, you know, 15 years ago. And so, um, it just made me think, you know, I was really proud of the, of the, the evolution of that, you know, and the destigmatization of, seeking out mental health resources when you're a student in these elite business schools. And then I also really appreciated that um, first gen low income club as well. That's something that I think that uh, that's something that when I was there, um, that it would have been, you know, super helpful, right. In terms of being able to look around and say, you know, because again, it is, it is people of privilege of extreme privilege. And so just having others to be able to say, Hey, you know, this is, this is new, for people from my background would have been, and I can imagine that's very, very helpful uh, for those students as well. So I, I loved it. And it sounds like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of leading the way. And that's what we look to the Harvard business school for. Right. So, so it seems like yes. they're doing, they're doing a yes. great job and, and I'm excited to see that, that Alicia is, uh, is leading the way for, for them as well. Yeah. Just so our listeners know, of course we had Alicia on to talk about the student experience, but in a few weeks we're going to have, some professors who are focused on the, the teaching aspect and the professor experience. And so that'll be interesting. Um, so you want to definitely take a listen on that episode as well. Yeah. Shall we, did we do the, the coin toss? We did the coin toss. And I believe 
you are ranting. You're ranting. Yeah. You got to rant for us. Mm-hmm, I have a good one too. <laughs> so this is, yeah. <laughs> so my local library, my local public library okay. is hosting an event. It's an online event called Dishing Out Drag with Giganta Smalls. Okay. Um, where they're inviting teens uh, between the ages of 13 and 18 to learn what the life of a drag performer is like okay. and get tips on getting started in the world of drag. And Rob, I can't even tell you how many trolls are trolling and how many negative comments there are entering this space. Mm-hmm. And I am ranting because social media is just not good sometimes. And how cool it is for my local library to offer this to youngins and um just like trolls gotta trolls just gotta stop trolling. Like they gotta get a life. <laughs> I think that's, I, that's all I gotta yeah, say. I like how you said social media is like sometimes bad. It's most it's yeah, mostly bad. <laughs> it's mostly bad. It's mostly bad. Um other than my the pictures of my baby. Are you going to are you going to attend this? I feel like you should attend this to, I, to so support. It's for so I reshared it and okay. I loved like all the positive comments, but it's for teens ages okay. thirteen to eighteen. <laughs> so I might if I like registered, it might look creepy. Yeah. But I actually, um, my sister gave me the advice of actually reaching out to the, my local library and emailing them and just saying like, what a great program this mm-hmm. is. Like, can you know, and if I can support in any way, because I believe there are like our endowments and things like that that local libraries tend to or contributions that local libraries will accept. So I will definitely be reaching out to them. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's other local libraries and other towns across America where programs like this are happening. And I just want to, you know, encourage people that if you support these types of programs and like let the local libraries and library trustees know because they're important learning opportunities for our young um, growing minds. Awesome. I love that. Thanks for that, Nadia. All right. So let's let's rave Nadia, we opened season two, I believe, with me saying something to the effect of the monarchy was the biggest symbol of white supremacy for many people in the world. <laughs> I said something to that yeah. effect. So it got us it got it you got did. me in a little bit of a tiff with the royal family. And and so and okay. so now today did you get a call or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. It was a big social media battle between me and the royals. But I think, you know, so but I'm here today to say we have to take it all back, right? So uh, we're talking about the coronation, and so this for the coronation of King Charles, there will be several nods to inclusivity. Uh, Royal Navy Petty Officer Amy Taylor will be the first woman to carry the jeweled sword of offering to Westminster Abbey. Also, for the first time, non-Christian religions will participate, with other faiths taking part in the entry procession. Lord Indarjit Singh of Wimbledon, editor of the Sikh Messenger magazine, will present the king with the coronation glove. And Baroness Gillian Marin, chief executive of the board of deputies of British Jews will carry one of the king's royal robe. Nadia, there you go. All, right. all is forgiven. Is I take it all back. Pro- progress. progress. Yes. Long live the king. I, I stand corrected. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think that this is progress towards improvement. And there's probably still some gaps, but I will give you the rave because I don't want to be the negative Nelly today. <laughs> yes, yes, all is all, all is forgiven. We're all on the same team now. Yeah, uh, me and and the yeah. and the British royal family. So oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that's all it took. That's great. Okay, well, folks, 
The Inclusive Collective is a production of Refillion Media. We thank Alicia Thomas for joining us this week. We'd love to hear from you folks. So send us your feedback um, at inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and read us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check me out at nasconsultants.com and Rob at taconoconsulting.com. Folks, don't forget, Rob is hosting a DEI metrics measurement and recording masterclass on May 11th. Um, sign up at climateforDEI.com and uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, Nadia.